Welcome to Joy and Learning, a podcast from the Harley School in Rochester, New York. We are an independent school for nursery through grade 12, where there's always lots of interesting learning going on for us to share with you. This episode is a continuation of a series in which our head of school, Larry Fry, speaks with Harley alums. What follows is his conversation with Bailey Smith, class of 2006. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. This is Larry Fry, head of school at the Harley School, and I am joined by my old college advisee, uh, Bailey Smith, dialing in from somewhere exotic. Bailey, where are you? I am currently in Northern California, the beautiful city of Sacramento. Oh, you are? Wow. And um, so this is going to be an audio recording, but I have to tell people that over Bailey's shoulder is a dinosaur fossil or something. What is that? Uh, what is that thing over your shoulder? That is a wild boar skull that my partner killed. Whoa. <laughs> wow. With uh, bare hands, I hope, or who knows? No, just regular, just regular wild boar pigs. Um, they're an invasive species here in wow, California. Wow, that so. is crazy. Yeah, right. Actually, uh, all over the United States, apparently. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so Bailey, um, where we left off 15, 17, I don't know, years ago, um, you were about to go off, if I'm remembering right, to the Colorado School of Mines, which was a really incredibly cool and interesting choice to me. Um, but um, I wonder if you can just kind of fill us all in on the journey after Harley and how you've landed in this extraordinarily interesting position you're in now. Yeah, so I left Harley um, going to somewhat of an obscure mining and engineering school in Colorado, and I started not really knowing what engineering really was. Um, by the end of my four years there, I had a vague idea, but then I continued on to get my master's in environmental engineering. <laughs> um, a lot of the stuff I learned in college mm. academically was about water and wastewater treatment. So, you know, after that program, I was, you know, seeking... Mm employment there and then just weirdly ended up um, doing air quality instead of water quality, um, which is something I knew nothing about. Um, and after a few years huh. working in Colorado, um, focusing on traditional air pollution, you know, like coal plants and um, cement facilities, mm -hmm. uh, everyone was talking about greenhouse gases. And every time I tried to learn about greenhouse gases, we were um, quoting and looking at California materials because they were the only people doing stuff on this. So I was like, I want to be there. Um, so then I moved to California to sort of work on mm. the climate change aspect, which seemed like sort of the most pressing issue of our time. Um, and then I landed at the, working for the government right. as an engineer, um, which is where I've sort of continued my career for the last like 10 years. Wow. And, and your sort of title or... I don't know if it's title is the right word, but um, I'll say title is air resources engineer. Can you kind of build that out for folks a little bit? So we, as I literally have never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely not something we think of in the traditional engineering space. Um, I think engineering is typically thought of as like the design of infrastructure or like processes. Um, 
And being an engineer in the climate policy space is really less about design and more about applying those engineering principles, um, which are, you know, how you understand stuff. So um, it's about how we're understanding the human's Hmm. impact on our climate. So you use that technical expertise and your problem solving ability as an engineer. Um, but you're using it to assess how human mm-hmm. processes can increase or decrease our carbon emissions. Okay, got it. And so I feel like there's, is I don't know, I guess I kind of feel like there's pretty broad understanding about how humans impact, um, you know, carbon emissions and air quality. But is that true? Is it is it actually... Uh, more, it must be more complex than I have in my head, that's certain. Um, I think there's growing understanding about what behaviors we have that impact the environment, but there's still a lot of uncertainty in the specifics mm-hmm. of how much and how. Um, an example yeah. of that would be like, it's really straightforward. We know that you burn, you know, you burn fuel in an engine, you're creating emissions, carbon emissions. If you burn less fuel, meaning you better right. get better gas mileage, you're doing better. So that's a really linear approach. So an, another yeah. op thing about carbon yeah. would be um, if you restore a wetland, the plants in the wetland will take carbon from the atmosphere and store it in the soil. Um, how much depends on how warm it is, where the wetland are, are what kind of plants are growing. So there's a mm-hmm. lot more nuance into exactly whether or not carbon is going into the ground and how much. Mm-hmm. Huh. And so you must be taking an intense interest in everything that's happening in Ukraine and the closure of Russian oil imports and all that sort of thing to the United States. As a as sort of a climate scientist, what how does that sound different than it would be to somebody like me who just follows the news um, uh, like a liberal arts college graduate? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all following the news right now with a little bit of skepticism and misunderstanding about what's happening because it's a little overwhelming. Um, from a climate perspective, so, so much of yes, my focus uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, is really on the natural and working land side of things. Um, my personal focus is in the job that I do is really focused on how natural systems um, can impact the climate. Um, so I'm less focused on oil. Um, hmm. But when you do see incredibly high yeah. increases in oil and gas prices, it sounds morbid, but that is a, that is the driver for people to drive less. So um, it's not all bad when we're yeah. starting to rethink our behavior right. because this price signal has finally told us yeah. that we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Um, one of my sons uh, said, I hate to say it, but keep cranking on the gas prices. <laughs> And I think it's basically that perspective of that's the only way that you decrease emissions, in the, at least in that sector. So, so Bailey, you um, you wrote a little note to us in anticipation of this conversation, and I want to read it because it is so rich in interest <laughs> to me. So, so it's this. Broadly, I work on investing the proceeds from California's cap-and-trade program, which is a market-based approach to reducing greenhouse gas emissions to meet our climate goals. I find that an extraordinarily cool job. (laughs) And I wonder if you can just kind of tell us a little bit about how that works. And it sounds like there can't be too many, like the conference you go to must be about you and about five other people. But um, yeah, tell us a little bit about how it works and and if this is kind of a a growing field. 
Um, well, the cap and trade program that California did was one of the first. Um, and just sort of big picture, the way it works is, um, so, well, we started the cap and trade program because there was a call to action to reduce our emissions in the state. Um, so we said, you know, instead of telling each individual polluter, you know, how much you can pollute or what equipment you need to install, um, the state said, well, you know, altogether, we just have to reduce it. We just have to hit this number. It's really up to you how we get there. Um, if you're a polluter, you can install clean equipment. You can change the type of fuel that you're burning. You can change your industrial processes. Um, or if you can't do it right now, you can mm. pay someone else to reduce their emissions on your behalf. And that's a process we call like offsets. Um, and you can buy offsets, yeah. say, when you're flying, where you're like, I have to fly, right, but I recognize right, right. there's an impact. I'm going to pay somebody else to, to reduce their emissions. So this is pretty revolutionary in the world of like government huh. regulation because, um, you know, yeah. You can say like, oh, you need a catalytic converter for your car. You do that. Um, or you can say, oh, you can only burn so much coal a day. But this really gives flexibility to the to the companies um, about how to comply with the law. Yeah. And it turns out that they comply m much more um, hmm. when you give it, put it in their, their court. So there are a group of states in the Northeast, huh. um, including New York, that has a similar sort of market-based system. And that's called Reggie. Um, and they, yeah. the, the main difference between Reggie is they're really only focused on the power sector, how you're creating energy. And California covers everything okay. from um, how you're producing fuel to transportation to power to agriculture. So we have the whole, whole economy yeah. sector. And we're seeing that we've created this model and we're creating funds from it um, when we, we sell those credits to to pollute essentially and then use that funds for good things um, other states are saying this is awesome we want to do this mm -hmm. and we've reached out um, a lot to like Washington and Oregon who are developing practices the federal government is really interested which would be a huge take a whole step to try to have some sort of system wow. to reduce yeah. carbon right of course you're you're in the sixth largest economy in the world right isn't that what I always hear about <laughs> California? It's true. Um, and we have a lot of opportunities to invest in California. So we're able to make, I think, meaningful change mm -hmm. and really set standards and set an example uh, in a way that a lot of other folks like to follow. Yeah. So um, in that sentence, which begins with, uh, I work on investing the proceeds, it sounds also like I don't know a high finance kind of thing. Um, is it an intersection of your, of your um, sort of climate scientist engineer side of your brain, and is there kind of a high finance side to it too, or how does it all, what does it all do, what does it all look like? Yeah. So what I what my engineering role has really evolved into is providing recommendations for how we should spend that money. Um, so we want to look at you know spending that money Got on it. projects that first and foremost, like reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So um, that is like a sort of technical um, pathway, but you know, there's no shortage, like you're mentioning of strategies hmm. to reduce emissions. We know how to do that. Um, but that's not really our s sole objective. Um, we're really trying to find projects yeah. that 
have the most co-benefits. So we're simultaneously looking at, you know, saving water, um, saving energy, um, helping the most vulnerable mm. communities. So that's really the intersection of how do we balance these quantitative metrics that we can measure um, and use those engineering principles to determine with some other sort of economic and societal benefits. And how do we meld those to get the best project that can achieve huh. all of those? Um, and providing those recommendations out of, you know, this is where we should spend our money and this is how we should score and rank projects to get the best project, um, I think is a, a, huh. not necessarily yeah. a, a finance world intersect, but more about um, like the best way to spend that yeah. money is not necessarily an engineering check the box answer. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like that. So you, you, uh, you had written a note as well that that said some of the projects that you've helped fund. One of one of which was called the well, one of which was food rescue, and another forest health and wildfire mitigation. And I would think that water issues must be enormous too. So where are most of these proceeds kind of going, and and what what uh, what's the good that they're doing for California? Yeah, so I'd say most of the dollars are going to transportation, and that's because most of our emissions that are human-caused oh. in California are coming from cars. So we put a lot of rebates for people, getting people in zero-emission vehicles. What's more interesting to me is um, we say that transportation is the biggest sector, but if you look at emissions without um, – we don't count wildfire in that – um, exercise because it's a somewhat of a natural process. Um, huh. That natural process has been disturbed and yeah. exacerbated by our actions. So a huge chunk of the money is going towards wildfire, um, and that is a, a a pretty big, serious issue in the West. Um, in California specifically, the past few years have been pretty apocalyptic, yeah. um, and most folks are you know dying from these from smoke <laughs> inhalation rather than the fire themselves. So you know that wildfire mitigation piece is a uh, one of my favorite projects for sure for a variety of reasons. Um, mm, yeah. So w- one of the things we're doing, which is kind of counterintuitive, I think, to most folks, is that just just some sort of I'm really simplifying this, but the background of the wildfire issue here is. Um, the reason our wildfires are really exacerbated and out of control um, is both climate change, but also yeah. um, sort of the 10,000 years of oppression and genocide of indigenous people. Um, so, well, I should say the oppression and genocide of indigenous people, because mm-hmm. for the 10,000 years prior to that, um, those tribes have burned right. millions of acres every year. Um, they're burning more forest than we see burn every year. And they did that on a really small scale. Um, and that helped decrease the density of the forest and improve right. the health of the trees that were living. It provided forage for animals. So um, that really meant less severe and more controllable wildfires. Um, so when settlers came and right. killed everyone, the... the they continued to sort of oppress those populations and mm-hmm. an attempt to erase them really didn't allow them to do what we called controlled burning now or, or cultural burning. Um, and that fire exclusion right. has resulted in these incredibly dense, um, you know, drought stricken, pest stricken forests. Um, so what we do for our wildfire projects is burn the forest. So we're returning fire to the landscape. Yeah. Um, and we're doing that in partnership with tribes. Um, and our state 
our state forestry mm -hmm. department. So we're helping both, you know, restore the, the health yeah. of the forest where that means, you know, less fire and less smoke, but it also means better water quality, um, more habitat. So that's right. like one of my projects that, you know, we can by burning, we can reduce severe wildfires, help humans, yeah. help the climate, and really like restore power and management of these landscapes to tribes, which is something that we've been needed yeah. to address for a while. Yeah. So that is that is incredibly interesting. The paradox of burning to prevent burning is super interesting to me. And I've actually read a bit about the, the intersection of... Um, California native peoples and this question of land management in particular around burning. Um, but just to sort of transition over to the social good side, it sounds like there's a lot of interest both, I think I hear from you, Bailey, but, but also in the work that you and your colleagues are doing around, um, I guess, social justice and um, in dismantling structural racism, you know, a redressing as it were, impossible to redress, really, but um, the relationship between um, Native peoples and and the United States. And um, I'm just curious about, you know, kind of where your where your both heart is and where your work is on um, on on that side of it, the the doing social good side. Yeah, I think those two principles are aligned here, and that's what feels so good about doing my job. Um, one of the really core components oh, of the of the funds we do or, or you know investing is that they they must benefit what we call disadvantaged communities and those are vulnerable communities um, those are the folks that have mm. experienced historical injustices and overburdened by environmental degradation um, and we, I think we've pretty it's been demonstrated that those environmental justice issues are really a result of, of those structural racism, redlining, mm -hmm. a history of oppression. They're, the communities that are hardest hit are hardest hit um, because of government action and societal action. And we have a duty to, to redress that, mm. um, to, to, to at least try yeah. our best to make it better. So when we're trying to target funding, we're trying to do it in those underserved communities that are experiencing high pollution, low income, tribal areas. Um, so it's mm. really easy to just give a rebate to anyone who wants, you know, a Tesla, but if we can give a rebate to say a low-income mm -hmm. household, uh, to a family <laughs> that may have transportation barriers yeah. um, or access to job centers, like that is just going making that dollar go so much farther and achieving so much more. Um, so mm -hmm. that is a, a huge component, and it's been really incredible to see how we can make these dollars not not just reduce emissions, but do it in a way that really helps communities um and communities that have been really left behind um yeah yeah that's inspiring you should be <laughs> it super is. proud of that it feels great and you know it's <laughs> that's an it's, editorial <laughs> it's like a positive feedback loop because when we include communities in really early in the process and we're engaging them um, and include them in the decision making process it's I mean, they know what they need. They're the best able to identify their own needs. Um, and when yeah. we can work with them to design projects that really meet their needs, I mean, you get community buy-in, you get support, and that means that those projects end up being more successful anyway um, and just really going farther. So yeah. it's not something you can measure from an engineering perspective as cost-effective of like, oh, 
you know, this dollar gets more GHG reductions. Um, it's not a measure. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are components of it that are measurable, but it's really hard to say this is the most effective because it's helping these environmental justice communities. Yeah. So, um, Bailey, when I think back to you as a junior and senior in high school, I felt there was a quality of you that was just sort of aimed west. <laughs> um, and you did indeed go west for college, and you've stayed out west. And I'm curious if you stay plugged in with our city of Rochester and if you um, stay abreast of, of, uh, of what's going on here. And part of what I had in mind is you used the word redlining, um, and I think in, in reference to California, but of course that happened here, and we've done a ton of learning about it here at our school. The faculty has done professional development about it. There's some important new publications coming out. Um, there's a lot of energy in this kind of um, subject area here in Rochester. Yeah, I have not been that tuned in to the things that are specific to the Rochester community. I haven't been back um, in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I have to say the weather in the West is really just keeping me here. Um, but I, in learning about <laughs> these historical injustices yeah. and why we are where we are, you know, it's just kind of mortifying. But you're seeing that it's happening all over the country. Um, I can see it here in mm-hmm. California, but it's, you know, happened in Atlanta. It's happening in the Northeast. So um, I have heard a little bit about the the redlining history of Rochester, and it's very interesting to you know, compare that mm-hmm. with your perspective yeah. and experience with the city um, and really just see how, oh, yeah. oh, of course, I see it now um, that someone, you know, points it out and says, like, this is the history here. Um, so it's a, a problem yeah. that continues on and has such lasting effects. It's so incredible how powerful mm-hmm. access to housing uh, really can change things. Right. There was a, I don't know if you read The Case for Reparations a few years ago by ta Coates in the Atlantic Monthly, but it was all pretty much predicated on you don't have to go all the way back to the period of enslavement in the United States. You just have to go back to the mid-20th century and to redlining. If you want to really spin out and do the math, as it were, on um, the need for reparations, just do that. Absolutely. Um, and one of the, one of, interestingly oh, enough, one yeah. of the things we're funding with our um, funds is affordable housing. And it's an in- incredibly important issue. Um, and it's one of those areas where we're focusing that housing on areas that really need it um, and have been really impacted mm-hmm. by this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Bailey, um, you are doing work that feels you know, existential, right? And in, in its in its meaningfulness, um, in that climate change is really the existential threat of our time. And um, I believe that schools should reckon with things like that. And we think we we think we are. We've made quite a few changes that you'd be interested in probably learning about at the school since you were here. But when you think back to your own Harley education, I'm curious if there are particular things that in retrospect you're, you think like, oh, I'm really glad we did that. Or conversely, you look back and think like, we should have done that. Um, you know, interestingly, it's like not the the curriculum that I learned, I think, that gave me the takeaway and the drive to work on what I'm working on. I think it was um, 
really just the culture of of compassion and empathy and that was before those topics were really formalized mm. as part of the curriculum but i just really feel like those values have always been really core to harley um and that is true from a math class to you know a hospice mm. class yeah. so um you know i did take yeah. an environmental science class that blew my mind a little bit um and that is stuck with me for a while. But I think like the deeper yeah. lesson from just like the whole suite of really inspiring teachers and mentors about, you know, how to observe the broader world beyond you, beyond Harley, beyond this, you know, class, mm. and to just like understand your role and capacity right. to make meaningful change was something that we talked about in English class yeah. and something that was just felt. And I feel like that is what Harley gave to me that has been probably the most valuable, you know, skill set, mm. but just mindset um, in my work and my life. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That is really interesting. Um, so really kind of about empathy, the compassionate imagination, as you sometimes hear it called, and agency, your own ability to do something and make a contribution. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think that, I mean, that's the climate issue. We all have to make change that's hard for us at an individual level and a societal level. But I think when that's driven from an, uh, a place of empathy and understanding, that is an easier change to make as a collective. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, Bailey, this has been incredibly fun to see you um, and talk to you after all these years. I just have to say, um, I am personally super proud of you, and, <laughs> and the school is proud of you, uh, and we have a lot of uh, folks going into environmental work. You would not believe how many smart young Harley grads are out there doing interesting work, and we should probably... We should probably get a Zoom call together or something like that. Um, and I will also say that while you may not get back to Rochester much, um, one of my sons is going to be in the Sierra Nevada in, in the next uh, half year. So maybe we'll make our way out there and we'll pay a visit to you in Sacramento. That sounds great. The Sierras are a great place to be. Yeah, they really, they really are beautiful. Um, so... Um, Bailey Smith, thank you so much for speaking with us on our podcast. And um, we hope you will keep us abreast of all the extraordinary things that you are engaged in. And I do hope we can stitch together kind of this community of uh, Harley folk who are committed to making change when it comes to um, the environment and specifically around um, the climate crisis. Absolutely. Can't get enough Harley folks focused on that. It's been really great to see you as well. Thanks for joining us today on Joy in Learning, a Harley Schools podcast. We look forward to sharing interesting stories, discussing educational topics, and exploring ideas with you on our next episode. See you again soon.